Rosalie here. I am the little helper of the Live Feisty Media Podcasts. The Iron Women Podcast, I think, is one of the best podcasts in the whole entire world. I want to be a professional triathlete when I grow up because it makes us healthy and strong to do lots of triathlon. I also think I might want to be a hairdresser. Just saying. You can help Iron Women grow by using the codes Iron Women when you order from our sponsors. It really helps. Those sponsors are Crave Jerky, F2C Nutrition, Sound Probiotics, Coffee Method, Rudy Project, and Smashfest Queen. Go to ironwomenpodcast.com to find all codes and links. And now, introducing your hosts, Alyssa Kadeski and Haley Chura. Hi, Haley. It's been a busy week for us. How are you handling all of the excitement that we have coming up for everyone? Alyssa, I'm so pumped because just to give our listeners a little sneak preview, we have not one, but two Olympic gold medalists on the podcast today. It is some of our best work yet, I have to say, but sit tight and we'll bring those to you a little bit later in the episode. But first, how's your week been, Haley? What's it like coming off the high of the win at Coeur d'Alene 70.3? Well, actually, the night before Coeur d'Alene, I have to admit, I was doing a little research for this exact podcast episode and I watched the women's Olympic final in the team sprint, cross-country skiing. And if anyone remembers this race, it is when Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall are on a team together. And at the very last second, Jesse comes around the Swedish skier to win the gold medal. And I remember watching it earlier this year when I was watching the Pyeongchang Olympics and I was screaming at the TV. And this is kind of one of those things that as an American, you know, the Olympics bring out the best in in your country and you're always rooting for your own country. And you feel like you're a part of team USA, even though you have never tried to skate ski in your life. So I was screaming at the TV, couldn't believe it crying. And again, the day before the race, I've rewatched it. hadn't seen it since then. And, um, it was still super motivating and I had a really good race. So maybe there's something to it. We should all go back and rewatch that. I think so. And I think Kelly's talked about it in her newsletter too. I think everyone kind of, it's one of those things for me. I know it's one of those moments in Olympic history where I remember vividly watching that. And like you said, screaming at the TV. Um, I think anyone, you don't even have to be a, a team USA, you know, person to, or living in the U S or whatever to understand how epic that moment was. So definitely take a look at that before listening to the chats we have coming for you. Yes, because spoiler alert, it's Keegan Randall and Jesse Diggins on the podcast today. And what else? So we have been busy with these interviews, but have you had much else going on training wise or are you still kind of allowing yourself some downtime to reset after the win? 
I have, I've been ramping up training a little bit. The season is in full swing. So Coeur d'Alene was, you know, one step on, you know, this whole 2018 journey. So I, I have, I've kind of, I've come out of the race really well. I'm really happy with how my recovery went, feeling good and ready to get back to work. So that's kind of how things have been. And I think this week is, is more like business as usual. How is Vermont? Vermont's lovely. So I moved up to Stowe the past couple days. And so now I get to see the northern half of the trail, Haley. And I have to say that the honeymoon phase of being on the nice, like more, less technical, more groomed trails of southern Vermont is over. And I had a rude awakening yesterday with my long run. Just to give people a little bit of perspective, I was working pretty, you know, I wasn't super relaxed. I wasn't kind of racing it, but I did 19 miles on the long trail yesterday and it took every minute of seven and a half hours. So it's a grueling, grueling trail. And I think to be fair, that section that I did was one of the ones that typically can break people a little bit. I think it comes after about a hundred miles of just really rugged technical terrain. And so I definitely wanted to see that ahead of time and I made it through, but I have to say we're also getting a heat wave here. It's like in the upper 90s and that can make it a little bit dicey when I'm on the trails, Haley, because there's not a lot of water access and especially without, you know, SAG vehicles for me right now. We can go a long, you know, ways without having water sources, but I just wanted to tell our listeners, if you are looking for water sources, there's this filter bag and I'll have to put it on my Instagram because I somehow don't even remember what it's called. I purchased this from Amazon and Haley, it's the best thing ever. You can dip it in a stream or a lake or whatever you do come across and it filters up to three liters of water for you. And it saved, saved me, literally saved me this past weekend. So I'm very happy with that purchase. I think I feel even better about going into the FKT attempt with that, uh, with me, just in case it is warm when I, when I do that. Yes. Late July could definitely be warm. And I think it's cool. It's cool been following your, your preparation for an event like this, because it is so different from your traditional swim, bike, run, Ironman preparation. So this, these are cool things to learn, you know, and I think it is also, it's kind of nice to know that sometimes you can do 19 miles in seven and a half hours and still be extremely proud of that. (laughs) I know. Oh yeah. I was definitely proud. (laughs) Yeah. I think that actually sounds pretty fast. So, um, especially cause I saw some of the pictures of what you were quote unquote running slash hiking. So it's cool. I'm, I'm excited to see things coming together. And I think by the time you, uh, make that record attempt, you'll have covered pretty much all the trail. Is that right? Just about there could still be a few sections I haven't, but for most of them, I'll at least have seen kind of the, the road crossings going to, and like locating those things for myself. But you know, I, I would say I over 90% of the trail will be covered, which will be great. Nice. Well, while you were out in the woods, did you have any time to keep up with what was going on in the race world? You know, so I actually, full honesty, did not because of that particular reason. I was just out in the woods pretty much and sleeping and eating all of like back to back around that run. So I had to catch up via Twitter um, with the big show of the weekend, which I think was Challenge Roth uh, over in Germany. And I did you know, one of the first things I saw when I scrolled through the Twitter feed was the picture of the women's finish, which looked absolutely epic, Haley. It looks like Daniela Somler out sprinted Lucy Charles in the, you know, and beat her by nine seconds. Probably, you know, I don't know how close together they were running. Do you know any more details on that race? 
I think Daniela actually caught Lucy sometime on the run and passed her and kind of put a little gap into her. And then Lucy was working her way back up. Like Lucy didn't just fall off. And then it did come down to just nine seconds over eight hours and 43 minutes, I believe of racing that nine seconds separated the first two women. My big takeaway. And then third place, Kaisa Sally was only three minutes behind. So it was, it was just a fast, close race over uh, the whole day. My big takeaway was we've seen Lucy this year kind of, you know, she broke onto the scene end of last year when she got second place at the world championships. And then since then she hasn't lost a race. She even beat Ann hog who we thought might be unbeatable at the 70.3 distance. And now we're seeing Daniela Samler, you know, can keep up with Lucy or beat Lucy. And it's just cool, right? It's cool that we're seeing so many top women and, you know, and Daniela reef reigning world champion, we haven't even seen her as much in the picture racing this year. So it's exciting, right? Women's races are, are, are fun to watch. They're super exciting. You kind of don't know what's going to happen. And I think that's a really cool thing. Yeah. It's been super fun to kind of watch Lucy's development, I think, because like you said, with Daniela, you know, we haven't seen her race that much. And I think that kind of happens with a lot of the pro women or pros in general. They like to target Kona a lot of times, and then they they may shift their racing to accommodate a really great day there. But it seems like Lucy has found a way to do that, clearly, while still giving us good shows, you know, throughout the year. And we're getting to see her race a lot, a few different distances, all sorts of stuff. Um, she posts even, you know, sometimes she does run races only in, you know, it looks like her hometown, that kind of thing. So she's out there racing quite a bit. And it's, it's fun to just kind of watch that progression through the year. And you can see she has obviously breakthrough days where she's beating Ann Hogg. And then, you know, she has days where she's trying to play catch up and she has to fight for it. But I bet all of that, she's really able to just kind of keep putting into that bank for her to be using when things happen racing on a stage like in Kona. Yes. And I think we also have to put, maybe put in there that Lucy, I believe is still only 24 years old. And whereas Daniela reef, at least I know is in her thirties, Daniela Samler, I believe has been racing for quite a long time. Are you but calling us old Haley? <laughs> I feel old. No, I don't. I feel great. I just think we're, we're more experienced. What Lucy does is incredible, but maybe that's another way how she can, uh, race every other weekend. <laughs> no, I did. I mean, I look back on those days and I was able to do even just with ultra, you know, I was by far not competing at Lucy's level, but I do think there's something to it. And I think it's smart to use that age to your advantage. Yes. But excellent racing from all the women. I don't know if Daniela Semler is planning to race Kona this year. If Roth was her, was her a race, which easily could have been because since she's German and winning on German soil was, has to be incredible experience. So either way, thank you ladies for the exciting race. And thank you to Torsten for his great commentary. I believe Jordan Blanco was out there too, making sure the women had equal coverage and we are very thankful for them. And Haley, next we have a mailbag question. So as a reminder, everyone can always send in questions for us at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And we will get to them, not always immediately. So if you sent one in, kind of sit tight. It is coming. We have it in the works. But the one we wanted to tackle today is from Shannon. And she is training for her first 70.3. Well, she did that. She completed it. So we're super excited. Congratulations, Shannon. She did that in Chattanooga. And her goal for this year is to complete two 70.3s. So she did the race 
at, in Chattanooga, and then she wants to do one in the fall. So she's deciding on that second race now, and she's looking to decide between an Ironman-branded event or a Tough Man event, the Tennessee Tough Man. So she's heard a lot about Ironman being the cream of the crop, and she you know, is a little uncertain about smaller brand races. So wants our take, Haley, and advice on races that are not Ironman-branded, can we help her make this decision any easier? So also, I'm happy to start with this one, Shannon, because I have, I kind of entered the sport doing other races. Um, and I still try and really make a point to race a couple of them in a season if I can, or at least once a year. Um, like I know Savage Man is just an absolutely great race. I really enjoy going down and racing Mercury Man. It's not always possible to balance because a lot of them, you know, don't have money for professionals. So it's, it's harder now that I do have to be mindful of the business side of that. But I always have loved the feel of the smaller, more grassroots events. Um, they're not always smaller even, but there's definitely a different feel to them. A lot of times the people there are a little bit more laid back than some of the people who are at the Ironman events, I think. Um, you know, you might run into some things like you can rack your bike wherever you want at an event like this. Whereas at an Ironman race, you'll pr- you're probably told kind of exactly where to put your bike, that sort of thing. Neither is, has to be, I don't think better or worse than the other. It's just different. And I think it could depend a little bit on your own personality and how you approach sport and what you want to get out of it. But I think at the end of the day, I have certainly seen, you know, I haven't done a tough man event, but I have seen in some of the other local races that I've done really well put on events. They're always, you know, a focus is on safety and is on your experience, but it it definitely is different than the quote Ironman experience at times, but I have never found it to be less great or less impactful for my own personal race. But, you know, I think there are definitely people who really prefer to do the Ironman branded events. Yeah, I think I... I kind of echo everything you just said. And, but I think, you know, give it a try. You can't take someone else's word for it. And it's still the same distance and you're still going to get a finisher medal and feel that sense of accomplishment. You can still go and get the most out of yourself on the day, given whatever circumstances there are. And then you can make, you'll know for yourself. And I do think with a corporate brand like Ironman, you get a certain you know, you do get a certain level of quality, especially if you're racing in North America, but sometimes it can get that, you know, kind of same corporate feel. Whereas I think if you uh, try other, other events, you know, there's going to be different things, different courses. They're able to, sometimes with smaller field sizes, they're able to put on a race that just has different elements to it. Like you mentioned Savage Man, where, you know, you ride up a mountain and, Ironman has to kind of go along with different guidelines that might not allow them to do that. So it can allow you to, you know, just have a wholly different experience. And sometimes the other nice thing, it could be closer to home and more of a local race, which can be easier travel, might be easier logistically to get a hotel room, just those kind of things. So I think that there's, there's a lot of pros to trying other, you know, other events and supporting these other, other brands, because ultimately competition makes everyone better. And, you know, so why not encourage healthy competition between race companies as well? Totally. So good luck with your decision, Shannon, whatever you pick, happy racing. And I'm sure you're going to crush your next 70.3. And Haley, I think we have kept our listeners waiting long enough. So as we mentioned, we have Keegan Randall and Jesse Diggins up 
for our interviews today. And first up, we have Keegan Randall, who, as Haley said, was one of, you know, they were the members of the U.S. Women's Cross Country Team Sprint Olympic medaling team. I think I've got all the correct words in there. And after the Olympics, Keegan did retire from competition, but Pyeongchang was her fourth Olympics. So she had fifth, fifth. fifth. Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> Thanks. So, so much experience and she really has been able to watch that team grow and evolve. And we talk a lot about a lot more of her accolades and Jesse's accolades within their own interviews. So we won't waste your time with that now, but Definitely listen closely. I think you're going to enjoy the next few couple interviews we have for you. Yes. And while this is a departure from our typical Iron Women triathlon interviews, we know that you can, you know, you're going to get a lot. We're all part of the same endurance sports family. And we do have to give a quick shout out to Wayne from Polar, who helped us connect with Jesse and Keegan. I do wear a Polar watch. I love it. It has the best GPS and heart rate monitoring that you can get in a, uh, you know, in a GPS watch. So thank you, Wayne, and enjoy the interviews. We are grateful to be supported by Crave Jerky, Coffee Method, F2C Nutrition, Sound Probiotics, Rudy Project and Smashfest Queen. Hi, Keegan. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. And Keegan, you grew up in Anchorage, Alaska and excelled in a sport that might surprise or probably doesn't really surprise people, but you were a track and field runner and cross country runner. So I guess the surprising part is the summer, the summer sport part, but actually we're exceptional and um, running and you have a mile PR of five minutes flat. So I'm just curious about what was it like growing up as a kid in Alaska and when did cross country skiing enter the picture? Growing up in Alaska is pretty fun because we have the most amazing outdoor playground here. I mean, I live in the city of Anchorage, which is 300,000 people, so you get the decent uh, size of a city, but you can literally be five minutes onto the trails and you won't see anyone for hours. We have mountains, we have, you know, we have all four seasons, but of course we have a lot of snow, so a lot of great ways to uh, really just kind of test your body and get out there and have a lot of fun, and I grew up in a very active family, and I was introduced to the Olympics at a young age because my aunt and uncle went to the Olympics in cross-country skiing. Um, and my family is really active. So I vividly remember watching my first Olympics at five years old and deciding I want to go to the Olympics someday. And then kind of having multiple different ambitions as to what sport I was going to pursue. And so growing up doing all those different activities, I think it gave me a really uh, strong base of skills. Some things I was good at, some things I wasn't. So I kind of got to learn that like success and failure part two. And then when I got into high school, I was getting really serious about running and my running coach moved out of town. So I needed a new group to train with in the summer and I got introduced to the ski program and I kind of thought at first, well, great, this will help me stay in shape for running. And then in turn, I ended up really enjoying the ski training and it kind of combined all the things I liked about the other sports I was doing, which was downhill skiing, uh, soccer. Um, and then I was really intrigued by the fact that no American woman had ever won an Olympic medal in the sport. And it's kind of like, well, running, they've done it already, but in skiing, it's kind of wide open. So that's what kind of really piqued my interest. And then I just, it turns out I was kind of made for it. I love that you kind of recognize the need for a trailblazer and then stepped into those shoes. But so in 2002, just one year out of high school, I believe, 
you competed in your first Olympics in Salt Lake City, Utah. So what was that like just being so young and still probably pretty new to the sport racing in your home country? And like, when it was over, were you like, this is it? This is this is my calling? This is what I want to do? Or were you kind of still unsure at that point? It was amazing. I mean, the whole time I felt like a kid in a candy store. I was like rubbing shoulders with my heroes that I'd watched, you know, in the previous games when I was just a spectator and there I was out competing. I probably wore myself out in training because I kept following the big stars around on the trails. Um, it was so exciting to walk into the opening ceremonies. So so proud to put on that team USA uniform and especially being the home team there in Salt Lake. So I was just trying to take it all in. And I mean, of course I was there to perform and to race, but I knew that in my sport being endurance, it was going to take me many years before I was really competitive for a podium. So I was really there to gain the experience, do the best I could. And just going through that games, it, it got me so fired up. And it's kind of funny because the theme song of the games was light the fire within. And I feel like that's exactly what happened because I got this just strong motivation to say, I want to go after that medal. I mean, I'm 44th. I am far away right now. But if I just spend the time, put in the put in the effort, I think I can get there. And it was right after those games that we sat down with my coaches and we, we made a roadmap and we said, if I want to get to the podium in the Olympics, then I have to hit all these other benchmarks along the way. And we figured it would probably take about 10 years to get to that point. And that was daunting being 19 at the time to think I was going to be in it for 10 years before I got to my ultimate goal. But I also had a lot of great things to keep me satisfied and focused in the, in the meantime. And I was just so motivated. And Keegan, over the next several years, you started to rack up a lot of firsts for American cross-country athletes. You were the first Women's World Cup win, the first Women's World Championships medal, the first Women's World Championships gold medal, and we all watched earlier this year the first American, not even just women, Olympic gold medal in cross-country skiing when you and Jesse Diggins took the win in the women's team sprint in Pyeongchang, South Korea earlier this year. So, I mean, you've kind of alluded to this, but were you always a trailblazer? And when you and your coaches made that roadmap, did it include all these firsts? Well, I... I guess I was I was so excited to to try to just prove that Americans could be successful on the international level. Um, and I certainly wanted to be a good role model on the women's side. When I first got into the sport, we had some men that were starting to have some decent results. Like I think our men's relay team was fifth place in the Olympics in Salt Lake. And uh, we had some guys have some pretty good races. So that was encouraging to me. We also had a, a fellow North American, Becky Scott. She ended up winning bronze initially, but getting upgraded to gold from those Salt Lake games. So watching her certainly made me feel like it was possible. But if we, if I go back and look at that roadmap now, all of those things were markers that were going to show me I was on the trajectory to Olympic success. I mean, you had to, you had to have World Cup experience. You had to be finishing top 15, top 10, top five podium on World Cup. That was kind of the trajectory. You had to be successful at the world championships because that's when everybody is trying to be at their best in that focal point of the season. We had to start being consistent over the entire World Cup season to be ready for an Olympic performance. So I certainly was kind of focused on one of those at a time. And I, I remember I got my first World Cup win in 2007. And from there, I just thought I was on top of the world. Like, okay, first stop World Cup win, next stop I'm winning, you know, I'm winning everything. And to go from that to the next jump was a big step. And there was a lot of took a lot of patience in between to kind of keep building up to the point where I could get to that next step. 
But every time I got to one step, it just made me that much more confident I was going to get to the next one. And I just kind of kept like checking things off and looking forward. And it really felt like that 10 years just kind of went by. And I put in the work and all of a sudden I turned into the skier that I'd wanted to be. During that time, it seems like you also were evolving athletically to the top, but then also just as a leader within this surge that was happening for American women's cross-country skiing. In recent years, we, you know, your names have become more kind of household names, especially since the Olympics, obviously, with you and Jesse Diggins and Sophie Caldwell contending for Olympic and world championship medals. But along with that has, you know, we're kind of seeing and hearing more about this atmosphere that's evolved and camaraderie, especially within the U.S. national team. Do you think that you were a leader of that kind of movement? And how did you create this close-knit national team environment? I, my understanding is that some of the women are training, you know, in, at the Stratton Mountain School in Vermont, and then others are training in Alaska at the Alaska Pacific University. So how do you create that while women are, you know, on different sides of, of the country. And then how do you just kind of foster that growth? Yeah, well, again, I'm going to kind of go back to my, my high school days. And I really credit the cross country running teams, ski teams and track teams that I was on for just making an individual sport, a real team event. And for learning the value then of, of cultivating a fun team environment, which not only helped me achieve my performance goals, it helped me push more than I thought I could do on my own, but it also made the process so fun. And that was just my normal. So when I made the U.S. ski team and I was traveling on the World Cup, I wanted that same environment. I wanted those female teammates. And for a few years there, I was the only one. So um, I just kept pushing the coaches to overcome our geographic challenges, like you mentioned, of, of being such an expansive country um, and just working really hard to try to get the t- most talented athletes in our country together more often. When we did come together, like let's all compromise a little bit on our individual plans so that we can do as much work together and push each other. And then recognize the fact that we're going to be traveling on the road together for four or five months a year. And if we're going to do that, then we not only need to be good teammates on the snow, but we need to be their best teammates for each other to, to have a support system, to have kind of a second family. And that wasn't my idea. That was actually from our women's coach, um, Matt Whitcomb, um, who kind of took charge of this emerging group in about 2010, 2011. Um, and he just really challenged us to just be really supportive of each other, to kind of buy into the team concept. And through it, we we had a lot of fun. We started doing these music videos. We started putting the face paint on. I found the relay socks and we just, we really talked a lot about how we can work together to all be stronger, that the relays were some of our big goals, um, and just really be open and honest with each other. And, um, and I would say initially it took a little effort to create some of that team camaraderie and environment. We did this thing called team Tuesday where like every Tuesday in the evening when it was tempting to just hang out in your hotel room, we would get together and we'd go sledding or go for a walk or yeah, do a funny poetry contest. And it started off a little bit like, okay, we had to schedule it. And then after a while, it just became such a natural part of what we do. And, um, and I think just that mutual respect and really everybody kind of buying into the team concept is what ultimately has made this such a strong culture that has really brought everybody up to a new level. So let's talk about the race, the Olympic final in the women's team sprint in the Pyeongchang Olympics earlier this year. 
when you and Jesse Diggins beat the Swedish team to win the United States first cross country skiing gold medal. And that's first ever men or women. So we saw Jesse cross the line. We saw you tackle her. What was that moment like? Oh my gosh. Well, what's so cool is Jesse and I actually did this five years ago at the world championships. We teamed up together. We kind of came in as the underdogs. We ended up winning the race. And in that case we were reversed. So Jesse went first. I went second. She was the one that came out and tackled me. Um, and up to that point, I thought that was one of the most incredible moments in my career was just sharing that moment of the two of us just like, Oh my gosh, what just happened? We did it. And then also how our team was always like right there. And so to recreate that in, in Pyeongchang and to have that moment where, yeah, I got to go out and tackle Jesse. And she asked me, did we just win the Olympics? <laughs> and I got to just go, yeah, we did. And then the best part was that our entire team was literally like right there, like ready to pull the boards down. I mean, we just got to jump up and celebrate with them right away. And that was such a big, important part for us because we had talked about like the last four years coming in, how this particular race was a real team focus. And we knew there'd only be two of us out on the snow that night, but it for sure took an entire team effort to make it happen. And so the fact that they were right there to celebrate with us and just, just the, the feeling of validation, you know, for all we've been working for, because we've, we've been successful at every level up until this point, but the Olympics are the big show. And so to showcase our team and what we could do and, and finally say we can be at the top was just so satisfying. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of the logistics of the event, if you can bear with us while we kind of learn here. So our understanding of it is that in the women's team sprint, it's freestyler skate skiing and two skiers alternate on a 1.3 kilometer track three times for a total of six laps. So when you guys did this, your winning time was 15 minutes and 56 seconds. So I'm kind of doing the math and calculating here. And so I, I, first of all, I would love to know kind of how bad does it hurt to be sprinting all out for that two and a half to three minute, you know, period of time, then stop and then do it again, right? And then stop and do it again. So People in Ironman are used to, when you have a transition like that, you get to actually move into a different sport and you're using different muscle groups and it's kind of this, you know, nice, it's like, oh, finally, I'm done with my arms, right? With the swimming, I can now move to the bike and that kind of thing. So what's this like and how do you mentally handle that transition when you know how bad it's going to hurt to do it again in a couple minutes? <laughs> Um, I would have to say it's probably one of the toughest race formats that we do because you're essentially, you're, you're doing a sprint every lap, but you're doing it actually six times throughout the course of the, uh, the entire race because we have a semifinal. So we each do three alternating laps in the semifinal and then we get about an hour break and then we have to do it all again. So you've got, you've got the two of those plus then each lap you're sprinting and then you get about, you know, whatever, however long your partner takes to get around the lap, which in this case was, was about two and a half minutes, um, to recover. And so it's, it's a big challenge. You have to go out hard. You have to sprint. You have to stay with the pace, be tactically smart. And, but you have to make sure that you can last through the three rounds. And if in the case of the semifinal, you've got to save a little bit for the final, but at the same time, I think it's one of the most exciting fun race formats we have because I love the team events. Um, and the fact that there's two of you out there, you just have this really close connection. You're making it a hand to body tag. Every time you come to the exchange zone, there's five, five exchanges per race. And in this case, we calculated, we were coming into the exchange zone about 25 miles an hour. So you're coming in, you're with nine other teams at the same time. So you're trying not to, you're trying not to get your skis and poles caught up with anyone else. 
And then you don't know if the other team where their person's going to be. So people can be cutting you off. So it's this blend of like having the speed, having the tactics and also having a bit of luck that you don't get caught in any crashes. So we just, our tactic was to ski smart, was to ski clean and just be, you know, staying out of trouble. And we knew if we did that, we could be right in there. And Keegan, when I did a little research on the cross country Olympic program, I noticed that most of the men's events were longer than the women's. So there's like the 50 K mass start classic for men versus 30 kilometers for women. I think one of the relays is four by 10 kilometers for men and four by five kilometers for women. And even the sprint distances, the women race on a slightly shorter course. And my background is in swimming where in 2020 for Tokyo, we are seeing the women, you know, women's 1500 meters being added, um, in triathlon, we race the same distances as the men. So you know, it, is there a reason for this in cross country? And do you think it would ever change where we saw, you know, gender parity and distance? Yep. Uh, it's a great question. Um, it's been a big topic for discussion lately, you know, especially with the, uh, IOC having a big goal for gender equality, um, in the Olympic games. So I think it stems from just the history in our sport. And initially when women's cross country skiing started, you know, we were kind of in that era where people weren't sure what women could handle. And so they started off with the with the lower distances, you know, as a way to just kind of introduce women to the sport and see what happened. And then it's just kind of stuck that way. Um, I think the cool thing about cross country is what it's really about is is the start line to the finish line. You know, we, every course is a little bit different. You got to have a third uphill, a third downhill, and a third flat. What I've seen in my career is that I've always felt completely equal. We have equal prize money. We have an equal number of races. We get the equal number of TV time. So there's no disparity that way. The discussion has been, should we have men and women race the same distances? But when you really look at the sport, you see that men and women race very differently. Um, and I don't know if that's a physiology thing, if it's just a emotional thing, I don't know, but the women tend to race full out from the gun. So you'll often see this ridiculous pace in the first couple kilometers. The women's race will splinter up into, you know, the leaders will get out. There'll be smaller groups and it will pretty much stay that way for the entire race. The men, in contrast, they all go out in a big group. And in the case of 50K, sometimes they'll ski together for 48K and then decide to sprint it out the last two. So I think if you were to have women race the men's distances, I think it could potentially actually hurt the women's viewership because the women's race is going to get spread out. And now instead of the race lasting an hour and a half, it's going to last two and a half hours. And so it's just, it's just not going to look very good because that's just something about the nature of the way women race. Um, I think we, we get better and more exciting, more competitive races kind of at the distances we're currently at. You also just see the amount of time we're out there. You know, men can race 50 K in under two hours. I think women would probably be somewhere around two twenty, two and a half. So again, if you're looking at TV time, which is getting harder and harder to sustain, if you spread out the race even longer, it's, it could potentially hurt the coverage of women's sport. So I think the discussion maybe shouldn't necessarily be about racing the same exact distance. You know, if we feel like it should be a little bit more equal, then maybe we look at getting the time a little bit more similar. So maybe men would race 20K when women race 15 instead of automatically being double. So that, was my, that was my next one. Why not bring the the men down are you not down but like have shorter men's races and tell them to go 
you know, harder from the gun, make it more exciting or have, have preems or something. I don't know. Just throwing out yeah, ideas. Well, you know, they've really had to be innovative with the sport. They've been changing around formats a lot, trying to kind of find that solution. And in the couple of times that they've experimented with shorter men's races, they've actually gotten some really exciting results. You know, I think the men kind of underappreciate how just because a race is shorter doesn't mean it's any easier. <laughs> it changes the tactics of it. So, yeah, it's, it's a big discussion, I know, um, within the International Ski Federation, within the IOC. And I'll be kind of curious to see what happens over the next couple of years. Keegan, in the 2018 on the Winter Olympic team, you were actually the only mom. And when you raced in South Korea, your son was just under two years old. So did you always know that you wanted to return to racing after maternity leave? And do you think in the future that there's going to be more moms competing on the U.S. Olympic team? Well, I I have to be honest. I was completely surprised to be the only mom on Team USA because in our sport of cross country, I was actually part of a group of five athletes that all had babies within about six months of each other, and everybody came back to racing. So hanging out in the World Cup, it's just been a pretty normal thing to be a mom and, and be racing. So I was kind of surprised that you don't see that as much in the other sports right now. But after the 2014 Olympics, I came into those games as a heavy gold medal favorite. I thought that was going to be my chance to win that first Olympic medal. In the end, I, I just had a bad day. And I'm and I didn't get to make that opportunity happen. And so after that, I had to make a decision about whether I wanted to give it another four years. But my husband and I also really wanted to start a family. And I I felt like I couldn't put off a family for four more years. The team was also getting stronger and stronger. So we were just getting more excited about going after those relay medals, which in the end had was more motivation for me even than my individual chances. So we just got creative and strategic and, uh, you know, tried to plan things the best we could. And thankfully, Mother Nature played along. And I got to have my son kind of halfway through that Olympic cycle, um, which gave me a full year to come back before even leading into the Olympic year. And I've found actually that becoming a mom has given me superpowers. Um, I'm amazed at how well my body um, bounced back, how strong I felt, but also just this new perspective that, you know, skiing is something I get to do. I'm super grateful about it. I don't take my time for granted as much. Um, and I know it's about the effort I give because win or lose, I get to come home to a little boy that's happy to see me. And uh, I think that in a way maybe freed me to just perform at my best instead of being so worried about the the outcomes of what I was trying to do. Post-Olympics, you did retire from competition, but it seems like you were still very involved in sport. Earlier this year, you were elected to the International Olympic Committee's Athlete Commission, and you stated that issues that you want to work on during your eight-year term are anti-doping and gender equality in sports. So we touched a little bit on gender equality and race distances, but why are these two platforms important to you? And I know your tenure is very young, but do you, are you hopeful for progress? Have you seen any progress? Yeah. So I, 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 I've always been excited about the kind of the back end side of sport, you know, what makes our sports work? How can we improve things? Um, I got involved as the, uh, athlete rep for cross country to our international ski federation. I did that for eight years and I really enjoyed representing the voice of the athletes and kind of being a, creating a pathway of communication because a lot of times the athletes don't understand what why decisions are being made on behalf of the sport, but then it's also important that the the business of the sport really takes the perspective of the athletes seriously. So I really enjoyed that. 
I love the Olympics. I thought a way to stay involved in sport would be to take my five Olympics worth of experience and put it into helping just keep the Olympic movement strong. So I was really honored to get elected by my fellow athletes for this eight-year term. Anti-doping is a big focus of mine. Being in a sport of cross-country, we've been deeply affected by this in the history of our sport. You know, I think they've made, through my career, I've really felt confident they were making a lot of gains and that it was very really possible to be successful as a clean athlete. But of course, with things like uh, the McLaren report and things that come out, you know, stuff is still happening. So I feel really strongly about, you know, the power of Olympic athletes to be role models for clean sport. And the more we just need to teach the upcoming generations that you can win clean, that being a clean athlete is the only way to do it. And then also being involved in the process to make sure that we learn as much as we can from the mistakes that have been made and we continue to strengthen our anti-doping programs into the future so that we can try and continue to make our playing field as clean as possible. So that's a huge passion. The gender equality in sport I'm really passionate about because I'm involved with this organization called Fast and Female. Um, And we've seen through research that girls are six times more likely to drop out of sports than boys. You know, just there's a lot of different factors, but knowing firsthand the benefits of sport, I want to keep more women involved in sport. And that's both as competitive athletes, but almost more importantly, we need more women involved in leadership positions. We need more coaches. We need more administrators. We need more IOC members. And so my kind of perspective on what I can do within the IOC is not only making sure that our female athletes are supported to pursue their Olympic dreams, but I also hope to continue to work for ways that we get more women involved in the kind of administrative side of sport. Um, and I hope we can kind of keep furthering that progress. So I, I am totally new. Um, I've been in this role a couple of months. Um, I'll be, you know, attending my kind of first meetings here pretty soon. But I'm, I'm very optimistic um, and excited to, to work on these issues. And Keegan, you just mentioned that group called Fast and Female, and you are the American director of that group. Can you tell us a little bit more about that in case people wanted to find out more? Where should they go? What is this group doing? How can people become involved? Yeah, so Fast and Female is so much fun. Um, Our logo is a girl with sunglasses and pink pigtails. And what we're really about is keeping girls involved in sports. I mean, there's so many organizations out there, the Women's Sports Foundation, Girls on the Run, Z Girls, all these great things that are trying to, you know, trying to support girls in sport. And so what we're doing is trying to connect our girls with positive role models. So we host events where we have girls in the community come in, we bring in the elite athletes, And they get to meet each other, you know, and the girls get to hang out with their heroes. Um, Everybody learns each other's names. We do some activities that help girls experience new sports, build their confidence, build their self-esteem and connect with each other. And we hope that even through the course of a couple hours at our events, they feel supported, um, they feel connected and they feel that sports is awesome and they want to stay involved with it for life. Whether they want to be a competitive athlete or whether they just want to enjoy being active and and doing it with people. So we've got the organization started in Canada by a good friend of mine who is an Olympic gold medalist in cross-country skiing, Chandra Crawford. And we became friends in the World Cup, kind of being the only women on our respective teams. And when she told me about what she was doing, I just I loved the concept and wanted to get it going in the U.S. So over the last 10 years that I've been involved with it, we've done about 8 to 10 events a year across the U.S., but now that I've retired from skiing, I'm really excited to pour some more energy into into getting our mission spread across into more sports and more parts of the country. 
And Keegan, we are recording this just before the 4th of July, and I've heard there's a big race that happens in Alaska on the 4th of July. So for anyone who doesn't, hasn't heard of the Mount Marathon run in Seward, Alaska, it's like a 5K race, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's up and down a mountain, and I think there's more than 3,000 feet of elevation gain, and it's like a huge deal if you finish under an hour. So you are a past champion, along with your mom and your aunt, um, are you planning on racing this year? Oh man, Mount Marathon is is for sure an Alaska phenomenon. Uh, if you were to go out and pull the general public in Alaska, you might actually get more people that would know about my Mount Mar- my one Mount Marathon victory as opposed to my Olympic gold medal because it's it's kind of the Alaskan Olympics. It's probably one of the toughest races I've ever done because you do you scale up this three thousand foot peak. Uh, it's so steep, you're pretty much power hiking at times. It takes about 40 minutes to get up the mountain, and then you turn around and you come down it in uh, about 11 minutes because the, there's this loose rock you can just run down. It's a big cliff at the bottom. You come out, your legs are all wobbly, and then you got to run through the crowds half a mile back into town. So it's it's one of the most exhilarating uh, races at the same time. It's it's a, such an Alaskan tradition. I got a huge monkey off my back um, when I did win in 2011 because my mom, that was the one thing she still held over me. Um, so it's fun to have the family tradition in it. And um, I do not have plans to do it this year. Just it's been crazy uh, since the gold medal happened in retirement, but definitely a race I love and I'd love to get back into it in the future. Well, Keegan, thanks so much for taking time, your energy and, you know, everything that you have brought, not only to your sport, but just to women's sport in general is absolutely amazing. And we thank you for that. And we will continue to follow you through your retirement with all of these great things that you're involved in. So Thanks again. Um, and you know, we, we can't watch to see, wait to see what you do next. All right. Well, you think I have energy. Wait till you talk to Jesse. <laughs> She's the sparkle chipmunk. So thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, it's great. You know, cross country very, feels very much a part of the triathlon community. I think we're all fellow endurance athletes. So, um, thanks for having me today. As if hearing from one gold medalist isn't enough, In addition to this great interview with Keegan, next up, we are going to talk to Jesse Diggins, the second member of that gold medal winning women's cross country sprint relay team. Jesse is still competing. She's training hard right now. We've mentioned her before because one of her primary training grounds is in Stratton, Vermont, where Alyssa has been training for the long trail. And we talked to Jesse about what it was like to win that gold medal and kind of where she sees this future of women's cross-country skiing. Hi, Jesse. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Jesse, we talked to your gold medal women's team sprint teammate, Keegan Randall, earlier, and she referred to you as the Sparkle Chipmunk. So I'm really curious, <laughs> how do you get a nickname like Sparkle Chipmunk? That's a great question. And I believe the credit for that one goes to Miss Chandra Crawford, um, who is a really good friend of ours and a good friend of the team. She is a Canadian cross-country skier, and she won a gold medal back in 2006. And we were coming up with our spirit animals for a fast and female event. So basically, if you know your your inner spirit animal, what would it be? And everyone kind of decided that uh, mine would probably be a chipmunk because kind of small and full of energy and just running around everywhere. And then Chandra was like, no, no, it would be a sparkle chipmunk uh, because I wear glitter on my cheeks for every race. And I'm just kind of a sparkly sort of person. So um, 
yeah, that just kind of stuck. <laughs> That's awesome. And I think a lot of us watching you in the Olympics got to see some of that glitter. And I think you weren't the only one. So it must have caught on a little bit. Before we get into too many of the details of the Olympics and cross-country skiing, we'd love to talk to you more about some recent news, which is the ESPN magazine body issue. So it hit newsstands about a week ago, and you were one of 16 athletes included. And first, we definitely just need to know what it was like to take those pictures. Were you actually skiing naked? (laughs) Was it just freezing? (laughs) Well, yes. Uh, To take the pictures, you do actually have to be naked. They they didn't, like, Photoshop anything. It's that's me skiing. Um, but I requested, uh, all female crew, um, and it was a closed set. So the trails were shut down. I was the only one out there skiing. Um, and it was very empowering. It was really a cool moment for me because I released a blog on my website, jessediggins.com talking about how I really struggled with taking care of myself and having any sort of self-confidence when it comes to my body image and just feeling good in my skin and like feeling proud of my muscles. And so getting the chance to do the ESPN body issue was a real full circle moment for me because it was like, yes, like I'm so comfortable with my body that it's not weird for me to be skiing around and and I, you know, nothing that anyone says about this can like hurt me because I have the self-confidence to not worry about other people's opinions anymore. And so it was, it was actually, it was really, really cool. And it's been so powerful seeing how it's affected so many other people. I've had more women and men than I can count um, who have reached out to me and said, wow, thank you for writing this. Thank you for doing this. This has been so important for me. You know, I'm a coach and I coach female athletes and this is good for me to know. Or young women are like, I finally reached out for help with an eating disorder. And it's been just really amazing seeing how it's affected other people and how it's been kind of an agent of change for good. So that's that's been really, really cool. Um, so for me, the, the doing the ESPN shoot, I knew going into it, it wasn't just going to be about celebrating athletic bodies, which is, you know, reason enough. But for me, it was going to, it was going to be about something even bigger than that. And Jesse, we've read your blog post. It's, it's beautiful. And in it, you, you mentioned your own eating disorder and how at age 19, with the help of your family, you checked yourself into rehab and effectively saved your own life. So, and you mentioned that you really want this, your blog, your inclusion in the magazine to open the discussion about body issues. So can you name a few things that you want people to understand about eating disorders? Uh, sure, I would be happy to do that um, because I think they're very misunderstood a lot of the time. They come with some some different stigma. And I think, you know, over the last couple of years, um, definitely there's there's sort of sometimes stigma around any sort of mental health issues because you can't see it. You know, if I go and break my leg, and I need medical help to get better, it's very clear what needs to be done. There's a series of steps. Um, You get a cast. You know, it's very visible. People can see the cast. They know that you're hurt, and they know they need help, and there's sympathy. But for an eating disorder, oftentimes you don't know. People can't see it. It doesn't mean it's any less painful. It's more life-threatening than breaking a leg, Um, and you still need medical help in order to get better, but it's not... Um, viewed the same oftentimes. No, you know, sometimes people don't know that you're hurting and that you are 
um, not being, uh, not taking care of yourself because you're not in that good place. So it's really important to understand that, first of all, it is, it is, um, like, uh, it's a mental health thing. It's often not even about the food. It's more about trying to find control over something in your life. If you feel like you don't have control or, you know, you have anxiety or stress or there's something going on from your past that is really hard for you to let go of. Um, so I think it's important to understand that someone struggling with an eating disorder needs a lot of support. They need a lot of, uh, like unconditional love basically, and, and not judgment. And I think there's sometimes a lot of shame attached to the label of an eating disorder because people say, well, why can't you just eat (laughs) or why can't you just, you know, keep your food down or why can't you just, you know, deal with this? And it's, it's hard for people to understand sometimes that it isn't even about the food. It's, it's, um, it's deeper than that. And so I think, you know, my biggest advice to, uh, friends and family is to educate yourself the best you can. There's a lot of, you know, like, for example, the Emily program has a website and there's a lot of different websites where you can find information and just learn as much as you can so that you're not just making judgments or taking a shot in the dark and you can ask the person struggling what it is that they need and let them tell you what they need from you. And I think that's the, the biggest help you can be is just to be there for them. So, and what about advice for someone who is actually currently living with an eating disorder? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's hard. And I think really for me, I had to make the decision that I wanted to get help because when I was dealing with my eating disorder, I felt extremely stressed. I had a lot of anxiety. I felt like I didn't have a lot of control over things going on in my life. I was trying to be a perfectionist. And this eating disorder was like the crutch that I needed to walk. You know, it felt like the only thing that was getting me through when in reality it was the thing that was like tearing my life apart. Um, But I had to decide that I want to get better. So if you are struggling with an eating disorder, you have to make for yourself the decision that you want to get better because you know the facts, you know how dangerous it is, you know that you might die but none of that actually matters until you decide to get better and nothing anyone says to you really will sway you. You have to decide that you want a life again and that you want to be able to uh, enjoy all the little things in your day without having this, you know, shadow cast over everything because when you have an eating disorder, it often takes over every aspect of your life and you can no longer enjoy most things. So yeah, that's, I, I just think you just have to decide that you, you are going to try and really try to get better and accept help. And Jesse, a lot of people love what the body issue shows, which is world-class class athletes of all shapes and sizes showing what their strong bodies can do. But there's always critics, as you mentioned before. So how do you deal with criticism, whether it's you know posing for the magazine or something else just that you you know, what kind of tactics do you use through your career to make sure you stay focused on the positive and not listen to the naysayers? Yeah. Um, because unfortunately there's always going to be a few losers out there, right? There's always some people who are going to try to tell you what to do with your life because of course they know better than you how to live. (laughs) So it's a little bit, it's a little bit frustrating, but then when you think back on it, you think, wow, if somebody is so insecure about themselves, that they need to, they feel the need to go onto my social media or onto my website or somewhere and try to comment, 
and tell me everything that I'm doing wrong, they're probably miserable. They're probably so unhappy and sad if they feel like they can't accept me for who I am because I know I'm a good person and I'm doing great. So really, I feel really badly for all the people who are trolls online because clearly something horrible is going on in their life that they feel like they need to do this to try to make themselves feel better. So I try to remember to have a little bit of pity for them and not just instantly hate them for being such bad fellow humans. And then I remember that every single person that matters to me in my life is in complete support of me, whether it's the ESPN body issue, whether it's my ski racing, whether it's, you know, being an ambassador for fast and female and helping coach kids, you know, all the things I'm doing, all the people who I love and care about just absolutely love me and support me. And so who cares what some random nameless 40 year old man sitting on a couch in his basement has to say on Instagram because they don't matter to me. That's not an opinion that I care about. So that's just at the end of the day, I think about it and you're like, gosh, that, that's super mean. How could someone say that? And then I think about it and I go, well, who cares? <laughs> like, honestly, who cares? All right. Well, let's talk about skiing now. And I counted six women's cross country skiing events at the Pyeongchang Olympics. And I believe you competed in all six of them. You finished fifth in the yeah, yeah. You finished fifth in the skiathlon, which is a combination of classic and skate style skiing. Sixth in the 1.3 kilometer sprint. Fifth in the 10k. Fifth as a member of Team USA in the four by five kilometer relay. Seventh in the 30k, and of course, first in the team sprint. <laughs> I'm tired just reading about that many events. And I know several of them actually had prelim, quarterfinal, semifinal, and final races. So that's so many start lines. How did you manage such a packed schedule and including that gold medal in your second to last race? Well, my teammates and I were joking that I was the most consistent skier of the game because I was like, constantly like the first person out of a medal or the second person out of a medal. Um, and I was like, Hey, at least I'm consistent. Right. But for me getting through six different events, um, was going to be a challenge going into the games. I sat down with my coach and we looked at the calendar and we said, okay, can, can we do this? And if we're going to go for this, how are we going to do it? It had to be really on top of everything. I was sleeping like nine to 10 hours a night. I was eating as much as possible. Um, I was, you know, just really looking out for hydration, always changing into dry clothes immediately after training, um, getting massage work pretty much every day, just doing absolutely everything possible to take care of my body and make sure that I did not get sick and make sure I was, you know, um, giving myself enough downtime so that I could have the available energy I was going to need to tackle six totally different races. I mean, the sprints are 1.2 kilometers and then there's everything in between that up to the 30 kilometer race. So it was a totally, um, different situation every time I got in the snow and I loved it. I thought, you know, every time I get out here and race, it's a new day. It's a new opportunity. This is a new chance for me. Um, it doesn't matter what happened in the last races, whether they were amazing or whether they were poor or somewhere in between, you know, every time I get up to that start line, it's a new opportunity. In addition to the distances being quite varied, even like the ski styles in those events is pretty varied. So do you have a favorite? And then, you know, when it comes to your training, 
how do you even balance training for just the wide variety of events in your week? Yeah. So besides um, a bunch of different, you know, sprints, distance races, we have skate and classic techniques and skate skiing. For those of you who uh, haven't seen cross country skiing before, it's kind of like looks like you're ice skating or rollerblading where your feet kind of push sideways in sort of a V shape. And classic skiing is where you have the tracks. And so you're striding diagonally, kind of like you're running up the hills, but with more glide. And for me, I've always loved skating. I've really improved my relationship with classic skiing uh, through a lot of hard work over the years. And it's finally clicked together. But for me, skating is always so awesome because instead of glide wax and kick wax on your skis, you only have glide wax. So that's one less variable that you don't have control over when you're racing. It's slightly less about technique and more about just guts and just going for it. And as far as training goes, uh, you definitely have to balance your time between skating and classic. But the thing is, we train so many hours that you wouldn't be able to just skate or just classic the whole time anyway. You want to be switching it up, using different muscle sets, making sure that you're giving those skating muscles a break when you're working on your classic skiing. So we asked Keegan about the Olympic final and the women's team sprint in Pyeongchang. And the moment when you came around the Swedish skier in the final meters to cross the line first, um, we, along with the world, watched Keegan tackle you and let you know that the two of you had just won the first ever U.S. gold medal in cross-country skiing. What was that moment like for you? Oh, man. I mean, that was that was a crazy moment because, um, you know, I logically I knew that we had won. I knew it had happened. We had, we had won the Olympics, but it really had not sunk in yet. It felt completely surreal. And, you know, when Keegan jumped on top, I remember going, did we just win the Olympics? <laughs> Asking like, did this actually just happen? I'm so confused. And she was like, yeah, yeah, we did. It was, it was really just the emotion and the celebration and just, uh, the acknowledgement of all the thousands of hours of training that it took from not just the two of us, but the entire team, because, you know, just because we were the two racing on the snow that day, doesn't mean that medal actually belongs to us. For me, that medal belongs to thousands of different people because it took so many people being committed to the team goals and, and being committed to coming to practice, coming to training camps, working super hard and pushing one another forward. And so for me, that's, you know, that was the best part was when Keegan and I got to get up um, when I could finally get up and we got to go see the team and they were all right there at the finish line. They were hanging on the boards. Um, They had been cheering the entire race. The entire team was out there. And that moment was just so special. Everyone was, you know, crying, laughing, screaming, uh, just trying to process the emotions of the moment in whatever way they knew how. Um, but it was, yeah, it was so special. And Jesse, you had been paired with Keegan before. So at the 2013 world championships, when you guys won the first ever U S world championship gold, which I believe she told us is when you got to tackle her. So overall, and this is also in the team sprint, but how are relay pairings and order decided? in cross-country skiing. Right. So 
the interesting thing that most people don't know is they didn't put in the start list until the day before. So up until the day before, you could decide who was going to race the team sprint and furthermore, who was going to race what leg of the team sprint. And they do this, you know, you don't have to decide until the last minute because of potential sickness or injury or if somebody is not in their peak shape or, you know, for a multitude of reasons, you may or may not be able to um, race. So the coaches just have to kind of, it's, it's super hard, honestly, trying to pick the team sprint is probably the most heartbreaking and hard thing of the entire Olympics. And for me, that was definitely the hardest moment was, you know, the fact that, you know, so many people deserve to get a chance to race and you can only start two people out of the entire team. That is so hard and it's not fair. Um, But at the end of the day, you have to start two people. And so the coaches said, you know, we were on form and we were going to do it. And then they decided to look at the two legs. And I had actually gone up to the coaches and said, I really feel comfortable doing leg two. I've anchored a lot of relays. I've been the anchor for the four by five women's relay since I was 19 years old. Um, So I've had a lot of practice with the tactics and the last minute sprint outs and the late kick going in and drafting people into the final stretch. And so I felt really confident in my skills as, as they pertain to like anchoring and, and being able to find speed when everyone's really tired at the end of a race. And they trusted me and said, okay, like, all right, we're going to put you as like two and you've been doing this a while and, and go for it. And um, luckily I was able to prove them right and, and not crack under pressure because there is a lot of pressure when you know that your team is counting on you and you have to be the one to cross the finish line. That's um, really scary. It's a, it's a cool feeling, but it's terrifying as well. And you just have to remember that you've trained so hard and prepared and you have to believe in yourself. It seems like Keegan is portrayed as a leader in this surge we've seen in U.S. women's cross-country skiing. Would you consider her a mentor? And now that she has retired from competition, do you feel like you need to step into her shoes and continue the work she's done to grow the sport? Yeah. Um, well, two things. First, I definitely consider Keegan a big mentor and friend and big sister of mine. And the cool thing is all the women and men of the ski team, you know, everyone fills so many different roles. It's impossible to just say, oh, they're a teammate or a friend or a mentor or like an older sibling figure. Um, They're all of those things all at once, all the time. And that's the coolest part is that our team is so close. Um, We really support one another. We believe in one another. And we know like everything about one another. It's it's like we're family, um, which I think is so cool because it really goes beyond sport. It goes totally beyond the world of sport. Um, and the other cool thing about the team is for me, Keegan was a huge leader and inspiration, but every single person on that team was as well. It's impossible to downplay the effect of every person on that team demonstrating leadership in their own style and bringing their own strength to the table because that's how a team functions. You need everyone to completely buy in and say, yes, I am all about this team. I'm going to help. And this is what I'm good at. You know, I'm good at being the team mom, or I'm good at being the team nurse, or I'm good at being team jokester, the team prankster. Personally, I'm the team team cheerleader. Like everybody kind of identifies their role on the team. And so 
I don't feel like there's this crazy, like, oh, I need to change everything and, and, and fill this sort of role because it's always shifting and evolving. Everyone's filling the roles all at, all at once. Like you don't have one person having to do all the work because every single member of this team is responsible for carrying team success. And I think that's so important. Um, and it's how we create a team that lives beyond us. It's how we create a team atmosphere that will be sure to be successful when all of us who are currently on the team are no longer on it. And so I feel really good about that. And I feel like when I retire someday, there will be no passing of the torch because there's no torch to pass. Like there, I won't worry because there's already younger skiers stepping up and, and finding their own roles to fill on the team. And that is a very cool feeling. So Jesse, as a winter sport athlete that competes on the snow, I'm very interested in knowing what summer training is like. So we've seen some videos of these giant treadmills that have you, you can actually like ski on them. If anyone's following you or the ski team you're training with in Stratton, you'll see videos of you guys kind of roller skiing up and down hilly roads. And we're pretty sure that roller skis don't have brakes. So we're very curious about how summer (laughs) training works and Again, like, do you enjoy the change of pace with that? Yeah, um, you know, I do enjoy the change of pace. I think that if it was winter all the time, you would really miss summer. I love the changing seasons. I think it's so fun. Um, And it's nice because then after summer training, uh, by the time winter rolls around, you're excited. You're ready for it. You want to be able to go um, get nice and cold and, and not be just super sweaty all the time. Um, so I love it. And we do a couple of different things for training. Um, like you mentioned, we roller ski and they don't have brakes. They're a little bit longer than, um, roller blades, but much shorter than skis. And there's two wheels, one in the front, one in the back, and you just rip down the hills on them and you go up the hills too. And it really mimics the same muscles and the same motions as cross country skiing. So it's, um, pretty awesome that way when you're training. And the other thing we do a lot of is running because it's great cardiovascularly, um, helps build your base fitness. And also, like I've talked about before, you would tire one set of muscles out so much if you did the same thing all the time. So we do a lot of running and then we weight lift twice a week. And uh, that's to help us get power and core strength, but it's also to help keep us balanced so we don't overdevelop some muscles and end up like, you know, the <laughs> typical cross-country skier is like kind of rounded back and hunched over because that's the position we're skiing in all the time because your core is working so hard. So you need to kind of balance that out and strengthen the opposing set of muscles so that, you know, you don't end up with problems later on. And Jesse, we previously mentioned your blog, and I, I do want to bring it up again because in that post, you you mention what you want your success in sport to do, and you want it to give you a platform to work on things you care about. In the post, you specifically mention climate change and girls in sports. And previously in this interview, you've talked about the fast and female being an ambassador for those events. So why are you passionate about these issues and what kind of change do you want to see happen? Yeah, thanks for asking about it. Um, well, for me, I travel... Um, around the World Cup circuit racing. And so we're in a lot of different winter countries um, during the winter seasons. And in the last seven years, it's been crazy how little winter we've truly seen. 
and it's terrifying. And now you can't host a World Cup if you don't have man-made snow as a backup because they don't even count on regular snowfall anymore. So that's a serious sign. So I've partnered with Protect Our Winners to help spread the message that we need to take this seriously. And it's not, I'm not part of any sort of political agenda. I don't think it should be political. It's just the fact that we only have one planet and we need to take good care of it. You know, you don't want to trash the only house you ever get to live in. So for me, that's, that's a big thing that I'm really passionate about. And then, uh, like we talked about, uh, fast and female, I think is really amazing. They, um, they're an organization that aims to empower uh, young girls through sport because between the ages of like 8 to 18, girls drop out of sports six times more than boys, which is so sad, you know, because sports are amazing for you. They build your confidence. They show you teamwork, leadership skills. They're, they're healthy, of course. You, you learn all sorts of physical skills and all sorts of agility and power and strength. But emotionally, um, sports have given me so much in my life, and I want every um, young woman to have that, too. So, yeah, for me, it's, it's really important to get the chance whenever I can to say, hey, like, whether it's just calling up a friend and going for a hike or joining a local, you know, a Sunday afternoon kickball squad, you know, just get active and be involved and have sports be part of your life um, because there's, there's so many benefits. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for your time today. For our listeners, a lot of triathlon and Ironman seasons are in full swing right now. So I think talking with you and Keegan is kind of a breath of fresh air to hear about another sport and kind of be able to mentally take a break and learn all about that. And your mindset and energy is just absolutely wonderful. And I think we'll continue to inspire our listeners as they are training this summer. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you. All right, Alyssa, are you inspired? Are you going to break out the skate skis this winter? Haley, I don't think I'm quite ready to take on skate skiing yet, but I am so inspired. I think their stories are just so great. And I really enjoyed listening to them building that team atmosphere and kind of that concept of everyone has to, you know, be on Team USA to make great things happen like they clearly did. And I'm excited to see what comes from them. Super cool story and a lot we can take away to our own sport. If anyone is listening and wants to help support our podcast, you can always check out all our great sponsors and get some discount codes at ironwomenpodcast.com. And if you'd like to write into our mailbag, that email address is ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, finally, we have the Outspoken Summit coming up and people can find out more about that at outspokensummit.com. And Haley, I think that's just about it for this week. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's great. Go have a great run, Alyssa. I'll talk to you next week. Bye, Haley. Why I like biking? You're really moving your feet and it's fun because you can actually steer where you're going when you want to. Whereas in swimming and running, you might have to plan ahead because in both of those things, either in swimming, you can run out of breath or in running, you could trip and fall. The Iron Woman Podcast is produced by Live Feisty Media. Our awesome hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. 
Our editor is Aaron Hamilton. Our social media queen is Danielle Adino. And our producer is my mom, Sarah Gross. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Leave us a review on iTunes. And have a great week of swimming, biking, and running. Bye for now. All right, Alyssa, are you inspired? Are you going to go break out the skate skis this winter? I am, Haley. I'm so inspired. I think this is really cool. I have like the USA chant in the back of my head now as I'm going to go run here shortly. So um, I'm all I'm all inspired and ready to go. Awesome. Well, big thanks to Keegan and Jesse for sharing their wisdom and kind of, you know, giving us a glimpse at a whole different sport that isn't too different from our own. Exactly. And so for our listeners, if you would like to keep supporting the Iron Women podcast as we bring you all sorts of people, as you can see now, um, there are definitely ways to do so. Please use the sponsor codes and support our sponsors. Uh, You can send us mailbag questions at ironwomenpodcast at mailbag.com. And of course, we have the gmail.com. What did I say? What did I say? At Iron Women Podcast? Iron Women Podcast? Yeah, what did I say? <laughs> Mailbag. <laughs> okay, maybe we need to choose one again. <laughs> I think actually we're just going to keep it because, you know, for our listeners who have made it this far, you deserve to hear this. <laughs> uh, <sighs> Iron Women. Send it. Okay. Send the mailbag questions to ironwomenpodcast at mailbag.com. And then we have. <laughs> to start over <laughs> Alyssa's been running a lot <laughs> <laughs> okay hold on I'm stopping it <laughs>